Hello and welcome to The Green Majority. This is Darren, your host, uh, your normal host, uh, chiming in here. Uh, almost completely back in gear and uh, and thrilled uh, that we have so many great uh, people helping us out here that uh, the show carried on even without me. Uh, hopefully I'll be back to full steam next week. So uh, if you missed me, I'll be back. And if you uh, prefer Stefan, let us know because I'm happy to let him uh, continue hosting. Just a quick reminder, as usual, every week that uh, we do need your support. We are, uh, among other things, looking for new equipment, uh, which you'll notice in the bonus show. Unfortunately, the, the end of the show, the bonus show, is a little rocky for audio this week. Um, you can help fix that. Become a Green Majority member. Sign up at patron.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Green Majority. Become a member. Help us produce the show and help us get the word out there a little bit farther and spread some environmental sanity and some honest and real and balanced conversation. Without further ado, enjoy the show. your host, Stefan Hostetter, uh, and I'm in studio, uh, full studio again, which is always lovely, here with Darren Kaster, Sabina Hassani, and Deirdre Leonita. Almost. I, I, Leonetta. Leonetta. Ah, oh, so close that time. <laughs> so um, one day we'll get it. We'll get it before you have to, you'll go off on your fantastic journey. The one time you're right before you leave. Stefan's just doing that so that I don't feel bad about always mangling names. <laughs> yes, exactly. Thank you, Darren, for, for setting a precedent that I can so proudly follow in. Uh, this, of course, is the Green Majority on CIET 89.5 uh, or, or, or across one of our wonderful radio syndicates or across on a podcast either through rabble.ca or on the greenmajority.ca. Thank you for listening, however you are listening. Uh, we have a great f- show for you today. And I think for once, we actually have a, the name of the show before we start the show. And I was saying this earlier, which I think is rare, uh, but the name of today's show is going to be Just Move, uh, which, of course, is a reference uh, to the Kretchen's uh, response uh, to, to the Attawapiskat uh, uh, crisis. And, and, and in this question, really, we're, we're looking into a lot of this question of why do some places move? Or why, why is our reaction to some sense that some places need to move and that some places are, are, are just sort of left uh, unsolvable and not un, unrepairable? Uh, you know, so it feels weird to say the word repair when referring to natural systems, but I guess that's because you know, it implies that we as humans have much, much control over that. But that's what we're going for. Uh, because what the first – our main topic today is on grassy narrows. Uh, and grassy narrows, of course, is, uh, is a small uh, First Nations uh, – a space right outside of Dryden, Ontario, or very close to Dryden, Ontario, uh, which in the 1960s, a uh, place called Reed Paper, that was a paper mill, I believe, uh, dumped chemicals into the river, uh, actually for quite some, for about oh, the 60s and some early 70s, was altering mercury poisoning among the First Nations peoples uh, who ate fish caught in the area. Uh, about nine, it's an estimated about 9,000 9, kilograms of mercury was dumped uh, into the river uh, by this pulp and paper mill in Dryden, Ontario. And uh, surprisingly, uh, that high levels of mercury uh, had some significantly negative impacts. Uh, the first, the, the the biggest one was that it completely shut down the fishery. There's a First Nations fishery there, uh, and and they could no longer sell the fish because they were quite honestly selling they'd be selling mercury poisoned fish. Uh, but but what was interesting about this problem, of course, is that what we what that really caused was this interesting creation where. None of the uh, of the of the fish uh, of the, the fishermen now didn't have a job to be able to to be able to make any more money, so they were still eating the fish, uh, and so and so this has caused decades and decades of mercury poisoning uh, in the space. And, and, and the reason why uh, this is a, a news story, I'm not sure if it's been all over the news, actually. CBC has been quite on top of this uh, this, this week, uh, is because a new report came out, uh, in, uh, which was, it came out earlier this week, sort of refinding the same things that were found in the 80s. So in the early 18, 1980s, uh, a man named John Rudd uh, was a lead author of a research, um, a research, and he they ran one at that point in time, discovered basically that they thought that you could clean this up and that it was possible. Uh, and, and basically, to be honest, the, the Ontario government said, we don't believe you. Uh, and then so he's come back, done another study, uh, and, and, and he's a lead author of this new research commission by the Grassy Narrows First Nation, uh, which was, was released this Monday. 
and again, he's come back basically saying that he thinks that we can actually clean this up. Uh, he, he estimates it will cost in, um, several tens of millions of dollars, uh, but he believes it's actually possible. Uh, and again, the, the, the consistent response from the Ontario government is, you know, la, 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 I can't hear you. No, we can't. <laughs> yeah, Derek. Well, no, I just I, – I, 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 your flippant comment completely uh, accurately summarizes my attitude towards it as well. But just for the sake of being completely accurate, uh, what they were saying was that uh, – or rather the excuse being what the, what the claim was. I am not in a position to verify it either way. Uh, but the claim was was that um, it was in such a state such that disturbing it would cause greater damage, hmm. uh, which when we're speaking about mercury is relevant. I don't know if any of our actual science people uh, want to jump in here. <laughs> uh, but just it, 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 whether or not it's true, it was a legitimate excuse if true at the time. The point now is that it's no longer true. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and it, what's interesting is that the Ontario government um, uh, – Yes. So the idea that the Ontario government's position in the last 30 years or 40 years or now, it's almost almost 60 years now, to be honest, uh, has been that the way to solve this crisis has been to let the natural systems take over mm. and let natural systems sort of slowly, slowly solve this problem. Um, but but Rudd's, uh, Rudd's uh, studies have shown that it, the actual recovery has stalled 30 years ago. So it hasn't gotten better for 30 years now. Yeah. So the, 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 the point that I just made, Stefan, was that that excuse ran out 30 years ago. That's right. the claim. There you go. Um, and, it rema- and mercury remains five to ten times more uh, than what it should be. Uh, I, I, like I, the quotes, what it should be, was, was from Rudd. Uh, <laughs> and I don't actually know what, what it should be is for mercury levels. I feel like it's nothing. Um, but there, I also, there is acceptable safe levels of everything, including arsenic, but right. it's 0.0000 something. That's fair. Yeah, when it comes to mercury, because it's a naturally re, uh, like occurring element like in our system, then there's like a very small, very small amount of mercury that's acceptable. However, with like the industrial revolution, obviously, like, you know, if you have a paper mill dumping a bunch of waste into into the environment, then that's going to increase the levels. But what's actually really, really interesting is that the Minamata Convention on Mercury, um, it's it was like a, a huge convention which uh, combined a lot of countries and uh, Canada signed it to kind of stop the increase of mercury and stop dumping mercury and trying to... Um, yeah, trying to reduce the levels because it's a global issue. When you dump mercury, because of the natural cycles of the of the planet, it not only does it go here, but that's why we're seeing polar bears have uh, you know a lot of mercury in their systems and a lot of fish in areas where why would there be there? So what's interesting is that Canada signed it, but they haven't ratified it yet. So only twenty seven countries have ratified the Minamata Convention on Mercury and. And uh, as much as people are trying to do something about it, nothing is really being done. Yeah, th- thank you. Um, that's like – and, and it was, it was, the other thing to point about mercury actually is, uh, is that, that it is a bioaccumulator. I think that's the exact phrase. Mm-hmm. I think bioaccumulation of some nature, which means that uh, it stays in your body. So uh, when a fish – so the thing isn't that you get what you eat one fish with mercury and then eventually it's no longer your body. If Every single time, the, the mercury stays in your body. And so you really so – you, so that's the biggest concern about having, having fish really affected is that so many things eat fish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the well, the other thing also can that's one example is if one person eats fifty fish. The other problem is that with predator fish is that if one salmon say eats fifty smaller fish and then you eat the one salmon, all of the mercury from all those fifty fix uh, fifty first fish accumulate in the salmon. So you might have like one serving of you know a nice you know salmon at a fine restaurant, uh, and you just got fifty fish smaller fish's doshas worth of mercury, right? So it's it's there's really it's not like oh I'll just limit my fish intake. No, it could be any. It could be a single serving of fish could be. You know, a, a lethal dose. We don't, we don't know. It's not tested for. It's not regulated uh, in any effective way. Just eat smaller fish. Yeah, <laughs> yes. only eat non-predatory fish. <laughs> is, is actually that is Grass would actually feeders. be a thing. We don't yeah. tend to like smaller fish. Though, do we? And no. and also like this this thing that you're talking about. It's also bioaccumulation and biomagnification. So for yeah, that's exactly the term of that's what you were trying Thank to you. say. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, yeah. So, so again, this so this is all why mercury is such a, a big deal when it gets spilled in uh, in these sort of scenarios. Uh, and so, what's happened quite recently is again. So, this report came out on Monday, uh, and then so, so the day later, surprising, not surprisingly at all, of course, uh, the chief of Grassy Narrows First Nations, Simon Fobister, or Fobister, uh, demanded the cleanup uh, on Tuesday uh, in response to the report. Uh, and what's interesting, and so his quotes, and the, two, the, the, the quote I think is what really is what really uh, is what really got a lot of attention uh, because it's what we we know what we know that our river can be made safe, 
uh, Fabazer said, uh, are, are our lives worth less than others to the government? And I think that's the question that sort of that I want to sort of play with uh, – play out through the entire show uh, because I think it's that question that we're sort of constantly asking throughout the environmental movement. When we talk about environmental justice, we talk about climate justice, what people are constantly saying is that asking that question. When, when a Pacific Island nation comes, comes and knocking on our door at, at an IPCC or a, you know, a COP21 and says, we need to do something, and they get you know, the reaction that they normally get, which is sure, we get you know, 2 degrees, 2.5 degrees, sure, sure, sure. Um, and they know at 1.5, the island doesn't exist. They're asking that question. They're asking, are our lives worth less? Um, and, and so that's the, and, and so in, and so in response to that, there's been sort of a pretty a galvanization of movement towards, uh, towards again, to try to convince the federal, sorry, the provincial government, uh, to clean this up. Uh, and it's been led, uh, obviously by the Grassy Narrows First Nation, uh, and supported by the Davis Suzuki Foundation and Amnesty International, uh, as well as other smaller groups, uh, and newer groups like Lead Now, uh, and, and, and even, and just yesterday, uh, there was, uh, something called, they called it the Riverwalk, uh, and also the, the hashtag free, Free grassy was also uh, was also used, um, and it was, uh, and it, and this was a whole bunch of people who came who joined a bunch of youth from from Grassy Narrows to march basically on uh, on our provincial government uh, and demand action and demand to get it cleaned up, uh, and. It's, it was, and so like, this is this is like a ongoing movement. Of course, the, this has now actually successfully gotten a, a better response from the provincial government than in previous. They've sort of th- they said they, I think Wynne said she hadn't seen the new report yet and was going to look at it. Um, and and I think uh, what's interesting is as this carries on, it's just another example of where uh, these frontline. Uh, communities are the ones standing up and really galvanizing the action towards something, uh, and yet they're also the ones who are being told to just move. Uh, so I want to I want to I want to sort of go to a panel to get your sort of reactions to sort of the the experience of uh, or your thoughts on this sort of idea. Like, why can't we get over the fact that like why is it that we uh, get to stay where we are no matter what happens, but the play, these other sort of other you know marginalized countries or not countries? Uh, well, I guess you know, technically First Nations are their own nations, uh, but are, are told to move uh, off their own land. Uh, and yet again, as we pro- highlighted earlier, the reaction to, to the fires in Fort McMurray was, we can rebuild. Uh, what about rebuilding sort of these natural systems? Darren? Uh, I, well, I was going to say, I'm already locked and loaded. I kind of wanted to see what if Sabina or, or Deirdre had anything to jump in. Otherwise, believe me, I am ready to go. <laughs> I guess I'll go. Um, so I think um, it's kind of a perfect example of, of humans and our flaw of um, kind of out of sight, out of mind. Um, if we don't see something happen ourselves, then then we don't ever believe that it's happening, which is why climate change, or part of the reason why climate change is a huge issue uh, for people to get their heads around because like it happens so slowly, we can't see anything. So <laughs> similar on a similar vein, but not, but not obviously the same thing. Um, people in these kind of marginalized communities uh, and remote communities, uh, small island nations, um, Attawapiskat, we don't interact with these people all the time. And the large, large uh, proportion of the population of Canada like hasn't heard of these people before. And because we, we are not personally connected to them, I, th- I think there's a lot to be said for personal connections um, especially in the media today, um, where even if we are not personally collect, co- connected to, say, a celebrity or something, we feel tied to them somehow. Um, and we know what's happening in their lives because we are watching them all the time. Um, so because we're not watching these people, because we don't see these people, because we've never heard of these people before, they're kind of in, inhumane to us. Um, not inhumane. That's the wrong word. Mm-hmm. Well, I think inhumane works. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Okay, cool. Yeah. Sabina. Uh, yeah, no, I completely I completely agree with what Deirdre is saying, but I feel like we've just been seeing this time and time again. Uh, First Nations aren't really as as a top priority for for Canada as uh, any other any other community would be. And what's really interesting, just re- recently yesterday, um, a similar thing happened was 
similar thing that happened was that an antibiotic resistant fecal bacteria was found in Manitoba First Nation drinking water community and there was only one single news news feed about that and I think that really goes to what you were saying that because the media doesn't like doesn't talk about it as much doesn't make it a personal situation doesn't put the faces of the people in the media you you don't really hear about it a lot and you just you kind of it, it also happens with the refugee crisis for example you will read if you just want to turn on ctv you'll read 100 migrant um uh fleed whatever coast of, of syria they fell in the water and now they're dead i mean 100 people are, are a lot if you were to put 100 people in a room and but we just see it because oh well that's just the war over there you know there's no personal attachment and when there's no personal attachment it's a lot easier to do harm to somebody else that's actually 101 one, one <laughs> genocide 101 and I actually took that course and that's literally like this disattaching yourself from the person can make you be able to you know do a lot more things a lot more bad things towards them because you don't see them equal as to yourself Mm -hmm. and yeah and just to play off that for a second it has everything to do with the uh, I mean whatever we're looking at like a hate group or any sort of Nazis or anything else or anybody anybody else that thinks they have all the right answers you know extreme religious people whatever Mm -hmm. uh, it's always it's always about dehumanizing everybody else because we have and there's a in my opinion there's a biological reason for this which is that we have an inherent uh, preference for human life and so it makes it a lot easier to be cruel to other humans if you trick yourself or convince yourself and others that they're not human or that they're less than you makes it very very easy to to do horrible things so that's why when we hear for instance <coughs> donald trump uh people <laughs> saying dehumanizing things about entire groups of people uh our alarm bell should be going off because this person uh is either attempting to or is without realizing it or is even without intending it for others uh creating it easy to do terrible things that we would never do to other humans under, under other circumstances um quickly about this I, I wanted to actually take a different angle on it which was that i think this is another example of extreme cowardice on the point of from the point of view of uh canadian politicians specifically i'm not even going to put it on uh premier win i'm not even going to put it on the liberals in general uh just canadian politicians are cowards and have no backbones uh and i think this goes from the bottom and go all the way right to to the top. And now why am I saying such a provocative statement? Well, because if you're interested at all in pushing forward what you think is right, um, there are certain ways to fight for things. And what you do, and, and, and I understand, and to give um, Premier Wynn here a, a, a half a bone, um, is to uh, to explain that the, this is politically toxic for her um, because it's a whole bunch of money that she needs to spend that's going to take money away from other extremely expensive programs she's currently trying to push right now. Um, so based on the, the furtherance of her plan, she, there, the money doesn't, isn't there. The money's there. She wanted it to be there. But it, it does, we do have a limited amount of money. Um, they're already concerned about attacks from the conservatives in the next election. So she's very, very concerned about running way, way over budget considering she's already running a bunch of seemingly expensive programs even though they're going to pay for themselves later. So this is a what do I get for this money calculation on her point of view. And it's not about her, but any politician in her point of view right now. It's about what do I get for spending this money? And I think, honestly, the attitude of this level of politician, and and I think while it's hideous, it's understandable, is, well, if I do this, they're just going to be upset about something else. Um, they don't they don't see a political win here for them, and they see massive pot- uh, potential political liabilities. And so that's why we have what we have. Now, why did I call them cowards? Uh, well, because if you want something, you can fight for it. And Donald Trump, for all his downsides, has one thing that we should have all learned, which is that if you want something, turn your weaknesses into your strength and punch the other person in the nose. And I mean this rhetorically, of course. Here's what you do. This is a legacy that was left by a company that didn't pollute. So we're going to pay for this because it's the right thing to do. And we're going to pass legislation so that there's a 100% penalty for any company that does anything, whether they've gone bankrupt or not, will hound you to the end of the earth and scrape the money out of your cold, dead hands. That's one thing you could do. Something else you could do is go and uh, raise a bunch of political uh, capital about how you're going to pay for these sorts of programs and provide all sorts of other programs and actually try and... Uh, make this a long-term solution about how this isn't a moral responsibility, but it's a danger to the larger community. You could just understand that a lot of people are racist towards First Nations people and and slightly avoid that by making it everybody's problem. You know, and these are all political solutions. They're not sort of things that I, conversations or arguments that I would have at a personal level. But at a political level, there are ways to do this and there are ways to turn it to your political advantage if you're willing to politically, again, of course, not literally, uh, have a little bit of backbone and punch people in the nose about stuff rather than playing defense all the time. 
Thank you, Darren. <laughs> just my opinion. Right. Just, just one man's opinion. Um, the, but so I think this, I want to get back to is this, uh, this concept of, uh, of, of actually of, of, of what Deirdre and, and Sabina brought up, which is, uh, which is sort of like how do you, if you distance some other someone, how much you can get away with. Uh, and, and there's a, so there's, I have an example of really, of really how bad that can go. Uh, and then I have a one way we can fight that currently or one way someone's confronting it and then we'll go to music break. Uh, the example example is is this fascinating example that I learned. I once drove to Ottawa and back in one day, uh, which is about 11 hours of driving. I'm, I know now every every conservative is like, you drive, you should be ashamed, but okay. Um, but I, so I was driving to Ottawa and back, um, and, and I had my car seat ha- mate happened to just have know a ton about the Rwandan genocide. Uh, and so to keep me up, because it was so long, I was like, tell me everything you know. Uh, which I promise is going somewhere. Uh, where it's going is that the first person ever to be tried, I believe it was the first person who didn't actually kill him ever to be tried for, for, in, in, for war crimes, uh, was a radio show host. Uh, during, at the beginning uh, in, throughout the, the Rwandan genocide uh, because of the fact the way that he used his his podium to other the the, the other side uh, and, and the way that uh, that so much of his rhetoric actually led to the to the uh, the original assault and then the ongoing genocide um, was enough for him to be tried and convicted of war crimes uh, and I think when I think it's useful to remember that when everyone anyone says some things like Trump's just saying things he won't act on them what he He's saying is dangerous alone. Uh, othering people is dangerous alone. Ignoring people is dangerous alone. Uh, so what can we do about this kind? So how can we, as as, as listeners, uh, try to understand uh, or, or or help ourselves understand better in this case? Uh, and I want to give a shout out to another media organization, uh, which is Ricochet, because uh, they recently uh, crowdfunded a, a position for a Aboriginal news correspondent. Uh, and and it's, it's specifically that was the role to talk about Aboriginal news. I thought it was grossly underreported, as as Sabina has even has proved even today. Um, and 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 so they actually have a whole section on their on their website in their news that's based around Aboriginal news. Uh, and I think this is the that is a great first step towards you know bridging this divide. Actually, find, learning about like you know let's let, let's on uh, you know I, I sort of as as Kevin Farmer is always annoyed that the environment section had to be its own section. I think you know othering sections are still a thing, but it's still valuable. That these conversations are getting out there. So please do check that out as well. Uh, and Ed, uh, I, I'm curious. I, I sent a, play, a request. Oh, are yeah. we playing that song? Yeah. And welcome back to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 or across any one of our wonderful radio syndicates uh, on rabble.ca or The Green Majority. Uh, .ca as well. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, that, just so I can get the exact name of the artist, uh, that was the Nui Janan artists uh, called this, the band, the song was called Home to Me, uh, and it was some youth from the Grassy Narrows First Nations. Uh, and if you, you know, that will of course be on the show post if you want to check it out. It was actually a, a part of the ongoing thing CBC was doing, doing for them. Uh, and so, moving on with our show, we actually, uh, f- long-time listeners of the show would know that we have a occasional guest. Uh, she sort of comes in and, and sends us these, these great little clips uh, of these different inter- interviews that she's done. Uh, her name is Christina Henke. Uh, and uh, so this, she brought us one today, which is lovely, and it's called Almost at the End of the World. And the piece you're about to hear, journalist Christina Henke, uh, speaks to... Only, an, so, only because I've been corrected four times. Henke? To, and she's going to listen to it. It's Henke? Christina Henke. Christina Henke. Mm. All right. Thank you, Darren. <laughs> um, speaks to an experience, uh, experienced fly fishing guide who lives almost at the end of the world, at the southernmost tip of Chile, uh, and, ve- and, and very close to Antarctica. For, most of, for more than a quarter century, this man has been making his living off eco-tourists who come to visit. Uh, and so now we're going to go to an interview uh, with this gentleman named Rafael Gonzalez. It's about two hours by plane from Antarctica, and his office is the natural and windswept habitat of Patagonia, at the southern end of the American continent, where tundra and glaciers make up the landscape. No walls, no windows, no roof only a perennially magnificent vista of jagged mountains and sky surround him during his workday. Rafael González Itura is an expert Chilean fly fishing guide for ecotourists who come there from all over the world to experience one of the last vestiges of unspoiled, raw nature. He knows where the best places are to catch several highly sought-after species of trout and salmon. Often, 
Those places are accessible only by helicopter. But, concerned about environmental conservation, he, like other outfitters in the region, always insists that the fish be released. He even wrote a book about fish for children and started a conservation program, teaching the young generation of Chileans how to treat the fish so they wouldn't die. The effects of global warming, the hole in the ozone layer overhead, and the fast-disappearing glaciers are impossible to ignore. Rafael González Itura knows that his health and livelihood depend on an intact and balanced Mother Earth. So, when the ecotourists book him as a guide, he's as much their chaperone who keeps them safe as he is a protector of the land and the life that inhabits it. A little while back, right before the fishing season started in the Southern Hemisphere, this seasoned outdoorsman spent a few weeks in the Toronto area, connecting with his Canadian fly-fishing counterparts. He also got some hands-on instruction in Canadian fly-fishing techniques. I had an opportunity to sit down with him and ask him some questions about the work he does. My name is Rafael Gonzalez. I am from Chile, but I live actually in Patagonia, very far from the center of the city in Santiago, Chile. I live um, actually more close to Antarctica than, this, than Santiago, Chile. Really? How far are you from Antarctica? By airplane is two hours only. So is it cold where you live in Patagonia? Yeah, usually, yeah. It's, I think it's different than here. You have, in summer, we have 15 Celsius maximum, some, maybe one or two days with 20. It's very windy, over 100, 120 kilometers speed. During the one week, you have four or five days very windy. And uh, in the winter is usually below zero, three, four, five. But how it's windy, the sensation is even colder, no? What's the landscape like in Patagonia? That that area specific is um, very south to Tierra del Fuego and is the the last island between Cape Horn and Antarctica. And in that place we have a, a lodge, or oh, I work there. We go to fish with the people from many countries, but uh, all the operation is by helicopter. So you can only get there by helicopter? Yeah. Oh, you if you if you, you can go there if you like to walk, you know. But <laughs> you can walk for two weeks, easy, because it's very difficult access. It's, it looks very flat, but it's tundra. I don't know in English right, how you tundra. say. Very soft, very difficult to walk, and if you when you carry many things, you know you walk very slowly. It's like walking on the sand on the beach, right? Yeah, even it's, worse because oh, really? uh, yeah, because uh, the, um, the tundra is really really soft, uh, have more than one meter deep. Then when you are walking with too much cargo, <laughs> you can almost disappear in some places. Then you need to be careful when you walk there. So um, some of this landscape is incredibly beautiful. I wonder for people who've never been there, I wonder if you can describe what the landscape is like. Well, Patagonia have, uh, is a mix of uh, landscape. And you have tundra, you have very flat pampa, you have big mountains in National Park, Torre del Paine is a very beautiful place, full of lake, different colors, blue, green, a lot of glaciers very big rivers too, and it's a very nice place, you know, you have forests in Tierra del Fuego, the last really forest, you know, that the people don't touch yet. That forest is very special, you know, very unique in the world. Is it an yeah. old forest? Yes, very old. Lenga is, is a tree that needs 300, 400 years. It's not taller than 40 meters. They need too much time to grow up. It's a very slowly. Everything takes too much time. Right. Here you have fruit and you have other things, you know, and there we don't have almost nothing. Only very good fishing, just luck, you know, because not too many people around. In total, in all, in all the region, we are no more than 500,000 people, even between Chile and Argentina. So what's the status of Antarctica? Who controls Antarctica? Well, it's a good question because all the countries have the right to be there. Exist agreements, you know, between Chile, Argentina, Brazil, Paraguay, China, Russia, many countries. 
So um, I understand that you're here in Toronto to try to promote the business that you work for. Yeah. What kind of a business is it? We have the operation in Cape Horn, in Navarino Island. That is the area very close to the Antarctica with fly fishing. Here is very common or popular in, in many places in Canada, Toronto, Vancouver, British Columbia. And uh, we have a very unique place because it's not we don't have people around, we don't have birds, we don't have mosquitoes, so it's very nice to fish there because uh, nothing poison, nothing like that. A lot of fish, not many people. We have a lot of landscape, many places where you can go and you don't find almost nobody there. You, you have in the national park a lot of people, you know, but compared with other places like here, it's nothing. Nothing, nothing. And it's very beautiful. And you have very good service, you know, with food. You have a lot of uh, seafood, very good wine. And the price is really good. So the most expensive in Patagonia is uh, where you stay, where you sleep. But eat there is really it's very good price and good quality. Very good quality. So you kind of live off the land. You're able to make a living because there's beautiful nature there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you are concerned, probably, with protecting that beauty. Is there any danger uh, that something might happen to the beautiful nature in Patagonia? In Patagonia, more than the half of the land is under protection because you have, I think, is the biggest res- reserve of the sweet water in the world, the yes. glaciers and the things. And then no mining around is very protected, that things. The areas have a lot of regulation. So what's special about fly fishing or fishing out there? Why is it so special? Well, first because you have many species in one place. We have four or five species in only one river. Then that is very good. And the reason for that is because the river is very pristine, very pure water. No contamination at all. Then you have brook trout like here, rainbow in the same place, steelhead in the same place, brown trout, sierra brown trout, king salmon too. It's very rich. So how come it's not been developed? Is it because of the climate? Because it's cold there? or It's too short the season. The season is really short. It's from Usually it's the season official starts in October and finish in April. But for conditions, you couldn't go there until the end of December to the end of March. Then it's really short in that place. So then outside of the season, what is the weather like then? And, and what does it look like? Does, does the sun come up? Or can you describe what it's like there? The day is very short. Uh, usually it's 9.30 in the morning appears the sun. And around 3.30, Forest dark, and then Puerto Williams, where is the operation in the winter time? You have one meter and a half of snow for four months, <laughs> five months. It's very hard there. So, um, would you like to work in an office uh, in no. Santiago or? No way. <laughs> Why not? No, no. I have a nice view in my office. <laughs> I send pictures to my friends and another day in my work, you know, another day in my office with a very pretty mountains, glaciers and lakes behind of me and I have fresh air all the time. You must feel very lucky. Yeah, I love my work a lot. But tell me about that program with the children that you set up. Tell me from the beginning, how did that happen? No, we we create a fishing club too and then a lot of of the members have children and we decide to teach these guys you know how to how to cast you know how to fish how to tie flies for example and then i enter and begin to work with a university and because they have the research money for that and then we create because i i have that idea for a long long time is try to create a book to teach the, the child how to release the fish or learn 
who is your friend in the river, the fox, you know, the bird, the fish. And um, with the university, we do that book to the children. And then I feel very proud because <laughs> finally we can do it. What's the title of it? Mi primera trucha. And what does it mean? My first trout. And exists today like a three more new editions, you know, because the, the government loved the idea and they begin to copy that. There's one important element that we should talk about, and that is that you release the fish. Well, exists. The law say that you can keep that fish, but in our company we say no. If you like to come with us, with our system, you need to follow our rules. We are worried about the, the future of the fish. It's very fragile, and we need to protect that fish. We like to see our children or the children of the, our children fishing. We need to protect that fish, and then we need to teach how to release the fish. You need to have all the time with you a net. Then you never play the fish too much. Some guests, they don't like that the, the fishing guy enter in the water and netting the fish. They try to land in the fish by self, in, in the shore. But uh, that thing uh, could be kill the fish too. It's a king salmon, maybe no, because it's very strong. But um, brown, rainbow, sea trout, or steelhead, it's much better netting the fish, then the fish is not so tired. Then you release the fly, you're holding the fish in the net, in the water, when everybody's ready, the camera is ready, and everybody's ready, then you're holding the fish to, to the photo, and then you release the fish. It's the best way to do. It's a, with that, you for sure, the fish have more chances. We have people from many countries, very big, or very rich people that very eccentric. Then they take the picture, and that's it. The picture is for the friends. I have a fish. But, for example, when when you teach somebody, you know, like a children, it's totally different. That is very special. It's very nice to see the, the emotion of that children when they have a fish in the, in the hands, and when they release that fish. They are so happy, and they remember forever. That was Chilean fly fishing guide Rafael González Itura in an interview in Toronto with me just before he returned back to his home in Patagonia, located almost at the end of the world. For The Green Majority, I'm Christina Henke. And thank you so much, Christina. Uh, and I apologize for getting your name incorrect the first time, uh, but I hope, I hope you, you'll forgive me now. Uh, and with that, we're going to quickly go to a, a music break. Uh, so as we give our tech a half second to make the switch over, uh, we'll, we'll remind you that we're listening to CIT 89.5. Thanks so much for everyone. And, uh, and Ed, what will we be listening to? And welcome back to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM uh, or on one of our wonderful radio syndicates or across across the country or maybe on rabble.ca or our own podcast, uh, which we can find at greenmajority.ca. And other things you can find out on greenmajority.ca includes more information about about Rafael Gonzalez uh, from the previous feature from Christina Henke. Uh, and, and you can also more, learn more about the remote region of Patagonia there as well. Uh, so... Moving on to our last section of the show, uh, we're just going to do a bit of a news roundup, uh, but still uh, with trying to keep on theme a little bit, at least early, for the first couple of the news, and then we're going to go we're gonna wildly off theme because Darren wants to talk about mantis shrimp. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but to start, uh, Sabina, uh, tell us about how the Antarctic is doing these days. <laughs> okay, thank you, Stefan. So um, an, an article was post- posted on The Guardian uh, titled, Antarctic ice is melting so fast the whole continent may be at risk by 2100. And it's kind of pretty much self-explanatory right at that title. That's um, So basically a new study, and it was published in the Journal of Natural Geoscience, exhibits that Antarctic ice is melting so fast that the stability of the whole continent could be at risk by 2100. This data was based on satellite observations of ice melting and climate simulations up to the year 2100. It showed that if greenhouse, however, it showed that if greenhouse gas emissions continued at this present rate, the Antarctic ice shelf 
um, could be in danger of actually colla uh, collapsing by the century's end. However, with uh, climate reduction and emission reduction policies, which hopefully we will take into into consideration, it can be it can be mitigated by the year 2050. And Dr. Karen Frey from Clark University, Massachusetts, who wrote this who wrote this paper, said that the data presented uh, in the study shows that the climate policy and therefore the trajectory of greenhouse gas emissions over the coming century have an enormous control over the future fate of surface melting of Antarctic ice sheets. So it's very, very important that uh, countries actually do take these mitigation policies and mitigation claims very seriously because not only is this happening in the Antarctic, but we've had a lot, a lot of other episodes here where we're talking about um, melting in the Arctic as well. And that is a lot of ice and that is a lot of water. And we really don't want to be, <laughs> don't want to have our entire planet underwater pretty much. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and I think it's, it goes, it goes, that goes a lot to say, of course, that this kind of Antarctic uh, melting is one of the major factors in increasing sea level rise. Uh, if I can go back just to one, my favorite fact I've learned on the Green Jordan, it's rare that like during the show I actively learn something. I'm usually like learning beforehand and then trying to convey that knowledge. Uh, but ab about, a, uh, about a month, uh, about, no, a couple weeks ago, uh, we had a gentleman on, uh, whose name I'm forgetting, but I'll, I'll, we'll post in the show notes, um, who, who, was a, who was a scientist and uh, studying uh, the physics of, uh, of, 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 of sea level rise. Uh, and he informed us that one third of the sea level rise is caused by just the oceans heating up. Yeah. And that still blows my mind. Yeah. I've been telling everyone that because it's just a, it's, it's a fact that I just did not understand and I did not really uh, ex expect at all. Uh, I sort of figured that this kind of story of the Antarctic ice sheet melting would be the number one reason why we wouldn't be able to do this uh, or, why, or why, why you'd expect to see sea level rise. Uh, and of course, that's a major part part of it and it will only be and as more and more you know we see, we see more and more melting or hopefully we don't but if we do it'll become a larger and larger factor but you know when you're it's it was a fascinating insight to the multi-level facet you know i always think that i understand the complexity and then someone comes by i was like hey actually it's more complex than you understand and, you're like, and I'm, I'm consistently mm -hmm. surprised uh, but so moving on to quickly on to the uh, on to two so uh, on to two places that will not be told to move uh, despite uh, to get back to the just move case uh, despite the fact that it's you know they're they, you know again they're being impacted by extreme weather in the same sort of way that other places do uh, both France and Germany saw th saw massive flooding over the last week uh, in in France uh, two people actually died uh, and in the Louvre in Paris and a lot of the a lot of the shots you're seeing in Paris are. are are from are from this massive flooding that's you know it's been the highest level for over 30 years in the French capital shutting down the Louvre and, and the Orsay museums uh, and of course and this is I think one you forget about all of the subways uh, mm -hmm. because they're underground like I think that was for me uh, when I was in uh, I was in New York right after Hurricane Sandy and the and the amount you lose the ability to get around the city once the, if all of the subways are underwater uh, is 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 like it's it's obvious, but it, it was l more of a surprise than I anticipated. And just before any you know smart bummed person out there goes, aha, that's why driving's great. No, you person, <laughs> that all those people are now going to be on the street, <laughs> just as if they were if we didn't have subways in the first place. So just in case anyone, even for a second, was thinking about that's why we shouldn't have subways or anything even anywhere along those lines, you're wrong. Just wanted to cut right. you off of that. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. Uh, well, I, I just remember the. Uh, I just I just pointed that one picture of the uh, of the incredibly expensive car that drove into the in, in, in the, the, the guy had abandoned when uh, Toronto had a fair amount of, of rain a couple of years ago. Um, I remember I remember reading an interview about him, and he was like, "Yeah, I drove into this massive water. What is going to do? <laughs> what did you want me to do?" Um, so so all forms of transportation will be will be impacted, obviously. In fact, there's actually a whole bunch of interesting studies done about how extreme weather is also going to make rain rail more expensive, uh, which uh, which is obviously a little depressing for people who think and know that rail is going to be, especially high-speed rail, is, is really going to be important. Uh, but so to moving on to sort of just the last 10 minutes are sort of going to be a random grab bag of news, uh, things that things that people found fun uh, or interesting. Uh, and we're going to start, I guess, actually, Deirdre, you, uh, do you want to start with, uh, with the, the piece of news that that when I mentioned you were got incredibly excited, so which is why I'm glad that you got to introduce it. Yeah, so um, we obviously have to find ways to combat climate change and uh, reduce our emissions in the world if we're not going to stop producing them. Um, and there have been a ton of new technologies that have come out, um, and the latest one 
The latest one is really interesting. Uh, the latest new technology to combat CO2 rises is uh, is sponges. And uh, sponges. sponges. Is the, is the, is not Earth sea sponge sponges. Worthy? But they will be sea sponges. <laughs> not live sea sponges, though. Um, so, and... Um, and it's not just a regular sponge. It's a it's a sponge of baking soda. Um, so, so baking soda is a really interesting chemical. Uh, it cleans your fridge, cleans your laundry, it makes cookies, <laughs> uh, and now it uh, now it cleans the atmosphere too. Um, scientists at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California have designed this sponge-like material that contains microcapsules that um, that start as uh, carbonate, sodium carbonate, but when mixed with water and CO2, they form sodium bicarbonate, otherwise known as baking soda. Um, so what they're going to propose doing is a cheaper alternative method to get CO2 out of the atmosphere by um, creating these water capsules um, and it'll just it'll just suck that out of the atmosphere. It'll capture that carbon. They'll bury it deep inside the earth, um, or to um, harness the carbon that's captured, they can just heat it up. So uh, that's the that's the newest thing in uh, in technology. Cool. Very technology focused. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna jump from one te- new technology uh, <laughs> of carbon capture and storage, which of course is this ongoing. Our carbon capture and storage, I think, is one of these holy grails of. Uh, <laughs> Uh, of uh, uh, at least of of, con- of of people who are trying to make money off climate change, I think <laughs> I think that is the most the best accurate way. Sounds to put great. It. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but Darren, you have a very different weird technology. Yeah. No. Um, well, I've I haven't done it in a while, so I felt that this was a good opportunity to um, to sneak one in here, um, which is you know got, get it on my biomimicry soapbox. And anyone that's a long-time listener of the show knows that one of the uh, soapboxes I like to bust out most frequently is the, okay, you don't care about my ethical concerns, what about this type arguments? Uh, and one of them is, you know, uh, you know, we have done in the past, but generally we shy away from them because it, it, it feels very much like something that will never convince anyone that doesn't already agree with me, and then we're just wasting everybody's time. So we don't tend to get into the ethical arguments too often. Uh, I feel that's fairly covered territory. A lot of people are doing that. It's just, you know, it's not that it's not important. It just, I, I don't think it's it's the purpose of this show. So aside from the just sort of inherent value of, you know, living creatures and not wiping out life there are also some extremely practical reasons why we might not want to eliminate all life but ours and why every single species uh is a tragedy when it goes um aside from you know just the fact that i think nature's cool and we shouldn't murder it um it turns out that nature's actually really useful um see here's the thing that people don't understand people you know a, a very psychological attitude towards nature was while well, humans are the most advanced species and might makes right which is something that you know nobody likes to admit but our folklore and all culture is scattered with well the strongest gets to be in charge and gets to make up the rules i won't go even anywhere into any of my uh religious topics on that point of view but it plays out largely in other areas and we just have a very just very cavalier attitude towards well whatever who cares if that species it's just a duck it's just a it's just a frog stefan you what do you value frogs over human lives stefan um, I'm sorry, I just well, like frogs. Yeah, well, it turns out that even if you don't like frogs, um, that nature's pretty awesome. Because what nature's been doing is, is essentially been doing trial and error, uh, self-improvement. Uh, if you know anything at all about evolution, which you should if you've ever been through a public school, uh, you realize that essentially evolution and nature is one big giant trial and error thing. Now, trial and error is a pretty slow way to go about stuff, unless you have, say, I don't know, four and a half billion years to get a head start. <laughs> and then you might know a few things. Uh, and so nature is all the time co-opted, uh, and should be, we should continue this practice. This is something I am a huge advocate of, uh, is borrowing all this giant head start that nature's got. Cause you know what? Nature's got some pretty seriously cool tricks up its sleeve. Uh, so a lot of people don't know, but I've said this on the show before. If you, if you've been listening for years and you've never missed an episode, you might've remembered me saying, um, that, uh, sharks, uh, uh, dive suits are reverse engineered shark skin, because it turns out that if you give sharks several million years to evolve, that they have have some pretty good ideas about how to move through water uh, and how to be waterproof. 
uh, are space shuttles. Uh, are the heat shielding on space shuttles is in fact reverse engineered? Uh, I believe it's clamshell, but uh, a crustacean shell. I'm pretty sure it's clams. Ninety nine percent sure it's clams. Uh, and there are many, many, many examples of this. If you Google uh, biomimicry, you will be drowned in examples of us borrowing cool things from nature because it was faster to see what nature was doing when it had already figured out a solution to a problem than start from ourselves from scratch. It's also cheaper. And it also we got a bunch of good ideas. So this is, for numerous reasons, uh, financially advantageous. In this particular case, uh, and I think it's really uh, – I really just wanted, as you can already tell, use this as an opportunity to – to harp on about why we shouldn't be wiping out species and every single species matters, if for only if for no other reason than its potential practical uses to us as humans. Um, but for the details of this specific example, uh, the mantis shrimp was uh, inspiring a design for a new generation of super strong ultralight materials uh, because it turns out that uh, crustaceans that use part of their body to smash things and have been doing so for uh, what was that number again? Right. Billions of years. Well, okay. So fine. Crustaceans haven't been around for billions of years. They were around for hundreds of millions of years or maybe one billion. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The point is it has a huge head start. Um, so this uh, armor, uh, they've recently just figured out a new section on it. And basically, they're just sort of seeing, oh, that's sort of how it's designed. And because a lot of the time it can be the molecular structure. So it's not the material. So if you did a chemical analysis, you'd find out, oh, it's, it's just calcium, whatever. And we have that in our bones. So why is it stronger? Well, sometimes the uh, organization of it. Sometimes there's other materials mixed in with it, which we didn't know to look for, so we couldn't see. Um, there's other things having to do with certain parts of the life cycle. There's a million reasons why we might not have noticed yet why this stuff that's been around us for a real long time is actually really badass. But this just give you an idea about how incredibly strong this material uh, is going to be, and this is already generating practical uses today, is that they're uh, already looking at, of course, who else? You said it with me now. The military is looking for <laughs> aircraft armor and body armor and protective things because of this shrimp is a badass. So that's just my thing this week about, hey, don't care about nature? You should. <laughs> Thank you, Darren. Well, if if the military is taking it on, I'm happy because that means that this technology is going to actually advance as any technology that's taken by the military suddenly so, well, has the <laughs> money behind it to, you know, go forward. The concern, of course, is, is that they use this to develop body armor and then nuke every other species, <laughs> preventing all future. But don't worry, the humans with no other species around will possibly survive. Uh, I think if they're going to use this, they should have to as a just a nod and acknowledgement of where they got the technology that all the Helmets and body armor should have the logos of mantis shrimp on them. Like they should have mantis shrimp helmets. Then they could, you know, people will go, ah, right. Don't kill the shrimp. I gotta. That's where we got the yes. body armor. I gotta say, I think the terrifying future where Donald Trump leads an entire mantis shrimp branded army uh, is not necessarily They're something I want to be a part of. They're the best. <laughs> the, the the best. Everyone else sucks. Mantis shrimp are the best. <laughs> it's that's a, well, I'm, I'm trying. To, man, that was, that was like actually a pretty good Donald Trump impression. Uh, although he, I like, think you'd also say like you just say it was great, and then you know you know who doesn't I'm like Mex mantis shrimp? The Mexicans. Oh dear. Now that's oh, no. see if at any point in time if from now on if anyone wants to use uh, one very short clip <laughs> against this show it is you going to be saying that sentence oh you only use American mantis shrimp <laughs> um, well with two minutes left of the show uh, now to, to to bring it back after it goes completely off the rails um, although again remarkable I think what you've been using some of your extra time to just practice your Donald Trump. <laughs> I think it's maybe your first impression, and I'm quite impressed. Um, but uh, to, to to close up the show, uh, we have now about one minute left, and I just want to get uh, to bring back uh, sort of the, the the point here of, uh, of of that you know that everything matters, uh, and we don't necessarily know what uh, whether or not it's a mantis shrimp, whether or not it's Darren's uh, impersonation of Donald Trump, or um, or you know far more serious issues uh, like what we see uh, throughout this sort of uh, throughout environmental justice conversations when people are told to just move, uh, because in reality. Uh, you know, where home matters. Uh, I kind of wish I, I had teed up the Ed so we could actually play us out with that song from uh, from the from the from the the youth. But Darren, well, no, and I just have to say because this is the theme of the show. When you tell them just move for anyone who's saying that, where are they going to move? They're going to move to where you live, right? Right. Which, so which, that we and and then when we run out of planet, there is no place to move off Earth. So just think about think <laughs> about that thought through. Yeah, uh, and and then again, also, you know what, you know. 
we the, the everyone's home is where they are uh and 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 it's ridiculous that some people get to be home and we repair it and some people don't uh so with that thought uh i'm going to send us off thank you so much for listening everyone this is the green majority on cat 89.5 uh, we'll be back with the bonus show uh to chat about maybe more mantis shrimp maybe this will get darren to do the entire thing as donald trump we'll see uh, have a great green week see folks and see y'all real soon So we hope you enjoyed the show this week. This is now getting into the bonus show. Quick reminder as well, if you can, please do become a member, even if it's just a dollar. If you're sitting there thinking, well, what can my dollar do? Um, well, we only need about 400 people to um, to give a dollar for us to get up to what we're currently looking for, which is about 400 bucks a month. Uh, this uh, provides the ability for uh, for starters for me to spend a full workday, eight-hour workday every single Friday producing, uploading, editing, and preparing the show. Uh, as well as all the other work of all the other volunteers that goes into it, expanding our ability to uh, reach out there, maybe doing some advertisements. There's a lot of areas where we can, uh, where a little bit of funding would really help uh, stretch this out. Uh, not least of which, first of all, is uh, me not taking an entire unpaid day off work to help produce the show every week, as I have been doing for 10 years now, going on 10 years. Uh, if you can help, please go to greenmajority.ca slash patron.com, uh, sorry, www.patron, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash greenmajority and become a member today. Uh, without further ado, as I mentioned uh, earlier, unfortunately, the bonus show audio is really shaky this week. A great reason to become a member. If you make it through, uh, great. Um, if not, we'll be back. Um, understandable. It's a little shaky, and uh, we'll be back next week, hopefully, with our regular equipment. Uh, and without further ado, here's the show, uh, bonus show. And thanks for listening. And welcome to, welcome to this week's uh, bonus show. We're using borrowed equipment again this week, uh, slumming it as usual. Um, this uh, we have a couple of things we want things we want to talk about. First off, though, um, I know we were going to just mention briefly the uh, the, uh, the whole uh, bear gate. Uh, was it bear? Gorilla. 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 <laughs> <laughs> eh, bear gate. Gorilla gate. Uh, the, whole, uh, the whole Gorilla Gate issue, um, and then also I'm interested in getting everybody's opinion on, on my whole uh, biomimicry rant. Um, let's start with with uh, Deirdre, and you can choose which thing you'd like to comment on. I have some further uh, further additional comments, but I had a whole sort of steam train uh, rant at the end there. There, I want to know if any comments on that. Um, um, you can start your steam train rant. I I probably have stuff to say about both of them. Them. Uh, I didn't know too much about Gorilla Gate. But uh, it sounds sounds it's just it's just taking over the internet. So uh, I'm excited for this for this conversation. And uh... <laughs> so, sorry for clarity. You're right. For sorry for clarity for people uh, that didn't the the four people four people that didn't see it on the internet. The issue was that a uh, a boy fell into fell into a gorilla's enclosure. The gorilla got uh, very agitated, and so the they, they shot and killed the gorilla. People are furious that they didn't try and try and drink it or do something else, and you know, blah blah blah. How callous you are of the natural natural life. Um, responsible people. I mean, other people were saying that that um, the reality is tranquilizers uh, take too long to kick in, in uh, and would have potentially threatened both the boy and the gorilla's life if they had tried that, that uh, because it could have killed the kid, and then they would have had to shoot it anyway. Um, so it, there is a controversy. I don't feel very controversial, but I think uh, if if the facts were being, were being given were accurate, I believe the right thing was done in this case. Um, just because it's it was the safest thing for everyone involved, uh, in, given the circumstances. Chances should we've tried to avoid it? Yes, but was the actions taken wrong? I I disagree that they were they were wrong. Just a quick question: Is this tied to Justin Trudeau's Trudeau's elbow gate? <laughs> yes, Justin Trudeau is personally responsible for the boy falling in the falling in the enclosure. Okay, just checking. Just checking. Um, um, what I find really, really funny about this about this topic, this goes back goes back to that lion that was hunted that everybody started freaking out about, like how like how dare you hunt lions? And then a lot of people had backlash about the story story saying this is the way that this community survives is by having these North Americans come here and hunt the lions and uh, you know do it in kind of a sustainable way. But 
what uh, Stefan mentioned earlier is, is like, is one life worth more than another? So just because you see this, this gorilla got a little bit of media attention, uh, are we ever going to talk about, about the 80% of orangutan like um, life, like like that is being completely destroyed um, in in the rainforest because of palm of palm oil, of palm oil products? And that's are you going to stop using your products in order to save these hundreds of thousands of orangutans in the forest? No, you don't care. You just care about this one gorilla at the zoo, the zoo because it's uh, because it's shocking and it is really shocking. But but also you know start to look at the bigger picture of things and and see that if it was your child in there, you would definitely be shooting that gorilla. So so yeah. Um, I just I just want to want to say that. Uh, the, I actually work for an organization that, that uh, does lion conservation, and uh, and the whole the whole um, lion lion episode. So actually was pretty great for us and for lion conservation organizations everywhere because it did. I mean, it did. It was a tra- as a tragedy, but it did draw a lot of attention to what would otherwise otherwise be an unnoticed situation. Um, although obviously there are either some people who took it a little, little out of hand, um, and kind of out of context, um, because I mean, hunting, I mean, hunting is, this is totally off topic, but hunting, <laughs> but, but hunting is a total viable, totally viable way of conserving species. Um, so maybe Gorilla Gate, um, will help gorillas and gorillas in the long term from now on. Oh, uh, Edward here, FYI, because uh, I don't talk very much. Very much. Um, well, so my 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 two cents on this is, is first of all, uh, I think Beargate has a better ring to it. Um, <laughs> doesn't doesn't reflect the topic, but better ring to it. Um, but I think but I think uh, I I read an article um, that uh, um, anonymous or a hacker group associated with them. Um, um, was get, trying to get involved with it. They were going to hack the zoo, and they were, were going to hack the mom. And I was like, I don't know what you're going to hack exactly. And we don't, and we don't, we don't need more enemies on on Green Majority, so we we won't try to, to piss off Anonymous because that would not 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 deal well. But um, um, I think I think a lot of people are trying to point fingers and and, and, point, and point blame at, at certain people. People are upset with the mom. People are upset for shooting the gorilla. But I think I think everyone acted appropriately, somewhat, and I think we need to be looking at all the all the cases. We should be making sure the mother did you know the best she could to stop her stop her kid. We should be making sure the zoo that that was the only option, and and we should also be making sure that the, the enclosures are are better kept kept and th- that this can't happen again. And then furthermore, um, we should also be thinking about, you know, is it right, right to be having these, you know, dangerous animals in enclosures? Like, like it's, I realize that's not the main topic, but like, like these are wild animals. They're not, you know, just friendly pets that you can, that you can go and just hang out with, you know? So, um, I think that'd be good to look, to look at. And, and, and I mean, any effort to, to help the gorilla gorillas and wildlife, I think is, is something good that can come out of them out of the situation. If, I mean, we don't need to have a whole inquisition into the mother and all that stuff. But at least if if more people more people pay attention to these wildlife type crises, I think it's 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 it, it'll help the situation. Well played, well played, Edward. Thank you. You um you actually you actually managed to divert me back to another off-topic thing that I've been thinking, I've been thinking about a lot, which is virtual reality. All zoos should be should be abolished immediately and replaced with virtual reality terminals. Because the problem, the problem is that we need to be people say, well, we need to be exposed to nature because otherwise we don't think about it, which is it, it is incredibly true. The problem is we have this boutique idea of nature, nature where you can we can go and visit nature down the street. Timmy, would you like to see some nature? Um, and that's problematic. As Ed correctly identified, it's it's uh, problematic for the species involved because keeping things in captivity activity is cruel and. Um, and you wouldn't like it, so why would you impose, you impose it on any, any other sentient creature? Um, and I think we do we do also suffer from nature deficit disorder, though. And I think virtual reality is is going to completely eliminate both of these problems because we will sh- we'll shut down all zoos just as soon as we can take um, 
microscopic solar power, not microscopic, uh, very small uh, solar powered drones with uh, with uh, eye of Sauron camera cameras, aka the cameras that can see in all directions simultaneously. These drones, drones that are solar powered are and made of vegetable oil, are going to cruise around deep nature, nature, investigate for research purposes, and allow people to go and visit these spaces without without any human having to enter them, and eliminating all need for zoos while simultaneously easily improving access to the experience that is, that is nature that these zoos attempt to provide. Deirdre or Sabina. Well, well, we're not too far from that technology, I don't think. <laughs> that I, here, here. I think, yeah. Oh, wait, Everything it's... I just said exists. The Eye of Sauron. <laughs> That's my name for it. Make it sound a little scary. That's well, okay. cameras that see it 360 degrees simultaneously. Um, <laughs> where do I begin? Okay, okay. <laughs> I don't know if virtual reality is a, is a way that we can like eliminate going into nature. I feel like feel like that that frightens me a little bit. It eliminate things that where we shouldn't. Okay, where we shouldn't be going. So humans to go to things like the deep jungle or rainforest. Right. Is it barren capture? These these things things replaced could could and should be replaced with VR. Okay, because because if you're talking about then me just sitting in my room and then having a virtual reality bedroom that just imitates the forest, I feel like that's gonna trick my trick my mind in a weird way, and we're gonna evolve really strangely if we're if we're just like virtual reality, and then because I don't know, I just I just feel like we're not meant at least not the way that we've evolved as a species. Species has not evolved in a way in which we can take all of these technological advance, advancements so fast. And I don't know how our brains will react to that, but this is, this is, just, this is just a thought. Obviously, like, virtual reality is not going to take over every, every single thing right now. It's going to be slowly, <laughs> but, but surely, I'm sure. And uh, I hope that we still can go, and go out into nature and enjoy that because 100% is the number one antidepressant for anybody out there. Um, about these um, these uh, vegetable oil powered drones, um, I feel that they at least need to, need to be painted green. I feel left that out. Once you paint something green, it's it's ten ten percent more you know eco friendly. Yeah, it's it's more it's more eco friendly once you paint it green. Um, but yeah, I think I think I think definitely um, I think zoos. So I'm 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 kind of like more conservative um, than than what I what I feel usually um, we do on the show. But even with zoos, I I have I have I'm I'm kind of uncomfortable with them. Like I I, I go to zoos, I admit. But there is that kind of uncomfortableness of these are, are wild animals, animals, and I think there's benefit to first of all you know e- more eco eco tourism and and you know going out and actually seeing wildlife now obviously i can't go see see you know a lion um or a giraffe um it's not it's not warm enough yet um global warming's going to pick that up soon but um but um but i think i think even these these zoos could be more, more actually like um their natural habitats paths because i mean a cement patch with like a water slide is not <laughs> natural natural habitat and i mean maybe, maybe we don't you know shut down all zoos right now right away but 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 we we try and make it more like a natural habitat and that and not it might not be as great for viewing you don't get you know to watch him stand on a ball a ball and you know juggle bananas or something but like it would be more comfortable for the people going to see it and it wouldn't be as 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 awful for the animals because really like that sounds awful to me to be trapped, trapped like that um, um you could actually see lions and giraffes at african lion safari but that is probably the most uncomfortable zoo that I could ever imagine for, for both the animals and the people in Canada. Um, speaking, of, speaking of zoos, does anyone know what happened to the High Park Zoo Capybara? No. I, I heard about them Have they found it? Um, I think they did. I actually don't, really don't know what you're talking about. Can you tell us what you're talking about? I don't know anything about this. Uh, I believe it was. I believe it was last week or two weeks ago. A little more than a week ago, I think. I think um, a capybara escaped from the High Park Zoo. Uh, and uh, and if no one knows what a, a capybara is, it's it's kind of a large guinea pig. It looks like a large guinea pig. Um, so one of one of these guys, there are two of them, escaped from 
a pen in, in the High Park Zoo and has run amok in the city. In the city. There, are, there are tons of great memes out there. Uh, but if anyone knows whether it's whether it's been found or not, please let us know. Please tweet the show. Or we, or we could Google it. Or we could, or we could Google it, yes. Uh, any, uh, I think that's probably about, probably about good. Any uh, closing comments? No, 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 no. We got some shaking heads. Okay, so uh, uh, some uh, poor equipment today. I can tell from the bars on my screen that this is already going to be a mess to clean up. So sorry about the audio quality in advance. Um, but other than that, we'll be back with uh, better, slightly better gear as well next week. And thank you very much for listening to The Bonus Show.